Grace to you and peace from God our Heavenly Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. A few verses after Paul was talking about uh, what he was in our epistle lesson, talking about his people, the people of Israel, he talks about who exactly is included in that family and how they are included in God's family. The text for our meditation tonight. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a child. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Have you ever encountered a person who just has a problem with God? Having gone not only to public school, but also to a state university for a few years, I've met all kinds of people who look and continue to take issue with the God of Christianity. The arguments, they can get pretty heated, especially when the issue of the Old Testament comes up. After having read the story this past year, I'm pretty sure we can understand why. There seems to be a lot of objectionable material coming from the loving God that we Christians serve. It seems hypocritical to them that this God who commands sexual purity would command one of his own prophets to marry a common harlot, knowing full well that she is going to cheat on him. It seems hypocritical to them that this God who forbade murder would command the slaughter of hundreds, if not thousands, of native inhabitants. It seems hypocritical to them that this creator of life would bring so much wanton death upon his good creation. A good God couldn't allow, much less bring, such evil on his creation. That's the argument, anyway. Now, for the most part, savvy theologians and religious philosophers, they've been able to come up with some pretty adequate explanations for these objections. Granted, not all their answers are perfect, but overall, they are considered satisfactory to these objections. However, there is one burning question that cannot be answered satisfactorily, even by the savviest of theologians or philosophers. That question is, why some and not others? Why are some saved and others not? Why are the hearts of some, like Pharaoh, hardened, and the hearts of others, like Paul, softened? Why did God choose the Israelites and not, for example, the Egyptians? 
Why did God love Jacob but hate Esau? And these are the types of questions that, honestly, I don't know about you, but at least for me, they, they tend to make us Christians squirm in extreme discomfort. The plain and simple answer is that we don't know. We don't know why some and not others. We don't know why in our, in our normal lives, why the cancer spread in him but went into remission for her. We don't know why the tornado hit this house but left this one completely untouched. We do not know why the gospel is received so wonderfully by some and yet to others it is obscenely offending. We do not get it. We can't explain it. And in a world that demands answers, that can feel us pretty, feeling pretty lacking. It can make us feel inadequate, weaker, incompetent. But this hasn't stopped some theologians and philosophers from trying to answer this question, why some but not others. However, if I may be perfectly frank, some of those ideas are pretty horrendous. There's, a, there's an idea called double predestination. That's your 10-cent word for the day. This is a theology, an idea, credited to John Calvin, who very reasonably attempts to maintain God's sovereignty, his power, by saying that God intentionally chooses some for salvation and intentionally chooses others for condemnation. Now that sounds pretty logical, and that's why it's a pretty, pretty popular notion. However, if this were the case, if God did intentionally choose some for condemnation, what would we say to Ezekiel 33? where God tells his prophet, Say to Israel, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. With words like this, this idea of double predestination, it just doesn't seem to work. Of course, when you have the pendulum on one side, it most certainly swings over to the other side. There is a resurgence of interest in what's called Christian universalism. If you don't know what that is, it takes this idea from Ezekiel 33 and it just runs with it. Bringing, if I may say, an unorthodox and honestly a pretty heretical conclusion. Absolute unequivocal, universal salvation regardless of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if this idea is taken to its conclusion, belief in Jesus is completely pointless. After all, if all humanity is going to be saved in the end, why choose one religion over another? Why say that one is right and the other is wrong? <laughs> For that matter, why would it matter if we sin? if someone is going to be saved anyway. We see this as a pretty serious problem. This conclusion, this inevitable conclusion from this idea of Christian universalism, it, it runs contrary 
to the entire purpose for which Jesus came, to redeem us poor sinners to the Father. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So unless everyone in the world accepts Jesus Christ as the sole means of salvation, and we do, we pray that that is the case. We pray that all people on this planet would come to faith. Not everyone is going to be saved. So, what do we say to such questions? What do we say when we encounter these passages that are very difficult, like Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated? This idea of election, to be sure, it's, it's difficult, if not impossible, to understand. But perhaps we're looking at it in the wrong way. Maybe the question that we should actually be asking ourselves isn't, why are some saved and not others? But rather... Why are some saved at all? One thing we should always remember is that before we were welcomed into God's family through those waters of holy baptism, as we saw a few moments ago, is that we were enemies of God. In our post-fallen, natural human state, we human beings, the pinnacle of God's creation, hate their creator. We were rebellious. We were proud. We were inventors of evil before our baptisms. We deserved nothing but suffering here in this world and in the world to come. We deserved nothing but that condemnation. We certainly did not deserve God's grace. And you see this pattern through Scripture. Abraham did nothing to deserve Yahweh's promise to him. Our understanding is that actually, before Yahweh came to him, Abram was a pagan. The people of Israel, as we saw in the story, certainly did not deserve God's grace, his, his being his chosen people. Their track record from the Exodus all the way up through their return from Babylon certainly gives that credence. Humanity as a whole, did not deserve the sacrifice that the Son of God made. Leaving his heavenly throne, assuming the frail, painful, mortal flesh of his creation, the sinless one becoming sin and dying the most horrific death imaginable, Lord knows we did not deserve such love. And coming down to our present day, everywhere, here in Frankenmuth and all over the world, not one of us sinners deserves to be called a child of the Most High. We simply do not deserve it. And yet it is declared to us. It is said that for Jesus' sake, you are forgiven. I give it to you. In his book, The Hammer of God, Bo Geerst illustrates this point very well in an interaction between a young interim pastor and an apprentice pastor. He's kind of a vicar, if you will. His name is Fridfelt, and his supervisor is called the rector. Just have a few lines that I want to read from this book. This is Fridfelt speaking. 
I just want you to know from the beginning, sir, that I am a believer. His voice was a bit harsh. He saw a gleam in the old man's eye, which he could not quite interpret. The rector put the lamp back on the table, puffed at his pipe, and looked at the young man a moment before he spoke. So you are a believer. I'm glad to hear that. What do you believe in? Fridfeld stared dumbfounded at his superior. Was he joking with him? But, sir, I am simply saying that I am a believer. Yes, I, I hear that, my boy. But what is it that you believe in? Fritfeld was almost speechless. But don't you know, sir, what it means to be a believer? That is a word which can stand for things that differ greatly, my boy. I ask only what it is that you believe in. In Jesus, of course, answered Fritfeld, raising his voice. I mean, I mean, I have given my heart to him. The old man's face became suddenly as solemn as the grave. Do you consider that something to give him? By this time, Fritfeld was almost in tears. But, but sir, if you do not give your heart to Jesus, you cannot be saved. You are right, my boy. And it is just as true that if you think you are saved because you give Jesus your heart, you will not be saved. You see, my boy, he continued reassuringly, it is one thing to choose Jesus as one's Lord and that he now accepts one into his little flock. It is a very different thing to believe on him as redeemer of sins of whom one is chief. One does not choose a redeemer for oneself, you understand, nor does one give one's heart to him. The heart is a rusty old can on a junk heap. Fine birthday gift indeed. But a wonderful Lord passes by and has mercy on that wretched tin can, sticks his walking cane through it and rescues it from the junk pile and takes it home with him. That is how it is. That's the difference. We don't ask why not others. We simply thank our Heavenly Father that He has chosen us. Not because of anything that we have done. I think we've demonstrated pretty thoroughly that it, we deserve death, not life. But out of His grace, His unfathomable disposition toward us, because of what Jesus did on our behalf. It is out of this unimaginable, unfathomable love that he chose us out of that junk heap. This teaching is meant to bring us children of the Heavenly Father. It's meant to bring us comfort. It's not meant to give us terror or anger. And it's also not meant to have us question whether or not others are saved or not. Knowing how unworthy we all are and how even God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, how can we even bear to think that he's not saved and, and she's not saved? That's up to God's righteousness, his right judgment. He will deal with everyone in his glorious and infinite wisdom on the last day. So let's not concern ourselves with whether or not such and such is or is not saved. Assume that they are like you and like me, sinners in need of Christ's all-atoning sacrifice. 
For that reason, I encourage you to count your blessings that you have that forgiveness, that you are one of the many elect, and also count your blessings that the Holy Spirit may be using you to call another elected one out of darkness into his glorious light. In Jesus' mighty and holy name, amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.